You know, as I was thinking about this message today, and I was thinking about um, just family in general, and one of the t-shirts that we have that we wear around is uh, at Village Bible Church is Village Bible is my family. And what we mean by that is that we are seeking to be a spiritual family. Now, we know that every one of us comes from some type of family. How many, I mean, how many of you really come from a crazy family? Anybody come from a really crazy family? I mean, it's, it's nuts. How many come from a really quiet family? How many come from a very quiet, yeah, Kirk, he's like, shh, real quiet family. How many of you, you put the fun and dysfunctional family? Anybody here that does that? I mean, we have some crazy families that are out there, but you know, one of the greatest things, and I think it's a great metaphor that God uses when he calls us to be the family of God. I mean, we are brought in, and it's interesting, and I remember as a boy, after my father had died, I remember re- hearing the scripture that someone recited to me, I was four years old when he passed away, that, my, that I remember saying that, that God will become my, be my father, and God sets the lonely in families. And, I, and I, I mean, I had a family, but I missed a dad. And I wanted God to be my father, and I realized that I had this family. It wasn't just a, a physical family, but I was involved in the church, and there was a greater spiritual family that was around me. And it was a support system to encourage me, to help me. And, and as a family, there needs to be a certain way that the family functions. We all have a, a way that our family functions, how we do things, how we make decisions, how we interact with one another, how we resolve conflict, how we handle stress, how we're going to do our roles. I remember getting married uh, to my wife, Melissa, and I remember trying to figure out, I mean, what roles, who does what? Who does the laundry or who's going to do the dishes or who's going to lock the doors at night and who, who's going to handle the checkbook and who's going to do all of these different things. But yet when it came down to certain decisions, who was the one that was going to be the one that speaks into that decision? And we all have ways that we go about it, right? I mean, you have ways that you do it. We have ways that we do it. But, you know, in the church, it's very similar. Because we're a spiritual family, we need to know how things work together because it's through our relationships with one another that Christ is really seen. Now, let me explain that. In the Ten Commandments, the first of the four Ten Commandments talk about what? What does it talk about? It talks about our relationship with with God. That's the first four. Those are the first four Ten Commandments deal with our relationship with God. But the remaining six talks about our relationship with man, with other people. That's why when Jesus was asked by, you know, what are the, what's the, the greatest commandments, the first and greatest commandment, and he said it's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is like it, and that is to do what? To love your neighbor as yourself. And he says this sums up the law and the commandments. So what he was doing, he was actually summing summing up the first four of the Ten Commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the remaining six, he was saying we need to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, where are we to love one another more except in a spiritual family that God has for us? And that means the body of Christ, specifically the local church, where we are to really work this out. But I don't know, I don't know about you, but what causes me a great amount of stress is people. People. I had a professor when I was an undergraduate. He said, you know, ministry would be amazing if it just wasn't for people. Unfortunately, it's the people that help make the ministry. And we need to learn how to get along with one another, to forgive one another to encourage one another, to admonish one another, how we treat one another, how we interact with one another. The scripture is replete with references that talk about how we are to live out this horizontal relationship 
with one another as we seek to honor God in our vertical relationship. So you can't just have this monk existence when you're out in the desert and surviving on, you know, whatever, and just be you and God and not have other people. That's not how God has ordained it. God has ordained us to be in a body, a family, where we work out this vertical relationship in the horizontal relationship we have with other people. So today we're going to talk about how do we do that in the local church? How do we do that in the family of God? How do we live this out? How do we be these people that God wants us to be? So that's what we're going to look at today. So tune in. Let's, let's hear what God has for us and open our hearts to receive this truth because God has laid this out within his word for our benefit that we might be able to walk in fullness of joy for all that he has for us. So let's pray. Father, speak to us in our time today. Open our hearts wide to receive the truths therein of your word, uh, that your name might receive glory, and that we might increase in joy. Be with us today. Draw us near to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, as we re- if you remember, I mean, we're coming near the end of 1 Thessalonians. We have one more message in 1 Thessalonians, and then we will jump into 2 Thessalonians. And as we've gone through 1 Thessalonians, we've learned quite a few things. First of all, this church is young or old? Young, right? You can answer for me and make sure you're staying awake. So I'm going to ask you questions today because I know you're all tired. All right? So this church is young. And do they have a lot of knowledge? No, they don't. As we've learned this, they have, they have come together. They, have, they were planted by the apostle Paul. And after he had been in the Sabbaths, uh, actually he had been in Thessalonica, he had taught on three different Sabbaths, and a church had been birthed out of that. But Paul was forced to flee Thessalonica because of what was going on. Persecution developed, so he had to flee without knowing the, the health status of this church. And so he's nervous about him. He travels a little bit more. He's writing to inquire, and he finds out that they had been strengthened. Now he is writing to encourage them and correct some misunderstandings they had on different things. And he's gone through this entire letter, and he's talked through about a lot of different things. Uh, He's talked about faith, hope, and love. He's talked about the end times. He's talking about the second coming of Christ. He talks about how to live pure lives. Well, now he's ending his letter with this concluding thought. And we start up in verse 12, and he says, We ask you, brothers, he's talking to the church now, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, what is he talking about? Who is he addressing? Why is he writing this? Now, if we were to look within the Greek language, we would actually see that he's not addressing three different people groups, but he's actually addressing one specific group. And what he's addressing or who is he addressing are those in leadership. He's telling the church, this is how you are to treat those that are in leadership, the elders that are among you, the teachers that are among you. And in this family that God has for us, he gives us how we are to do life together, and he shows us how we are to treat those who are our leaders. How are are we to treat them? Look at verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. Now, it's interesting. This word respect is more accurately translated to cherish pay attention to, to recognize. Elders do a hard job, and we need to recognize that they're doing a tough job and then appreciate them for what they do. In other words, we need to recognize them. Recognize them. When Paul says that they are over you in the Lord, the Greek word can mean to lead, protect, 
care for. Almost all of the senses of it being used in the New Testament convey the idea of being taking, uh, of taking care for. And the elders are taking care of the flock of God, the family of God, watching over for your protection. Just like with me and my children, I'm to watch over them. My wife has said, when I go on a retreat or I go on a mission trip, she said, I, I have this feeling within me. I, I, I don't feel as safe or secure knowing that you're not there. And, and the idea is, is that I'm there to help protect my family. I'm there to be providing for my family, to be there for my wife and my children, to be that strength for them. And it's the same with the elders are to be of a church, that they are to be the protectors. They are to be the providers. They are to be those who teach the word of God and lead by example. They are over you in the Lord. They're overseeing you. And that they are also those who labor among you. And the verb that Paul uses here normally refers to manual occupation. It means to toil, strive, struggle, and to grow weary in doing so. It conjures up pictures of ripping muscles and pouring sweat. Paul applied this to farm laborers and the physical exertions of his own tent-making job. But he also used it in relation to his apostolic labors, to the hard work of his colleagues who were giving of themselves day and night, who were visiting the sick, who were helping counsel those that were going through difficulties, who were, had children that had gone waywardly. See, this is what we as elders or your elder team does, is they're meeting, they're going to the hospitals to visit the sick. They are praying with those that are going through a hard time. They're counseling those who are mentally disturbed. And, and you wouldn't believe some of the phone calls that we do get of what people are struggling with and what they're they're dealing with and tragedies and situations that people find themselves. And it requires a great amount of strength. And he's saying, recognize them. These are the individuals who are over you in the Lord, who labor among you and are, o- and, and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, the tone that Paul uses when he talks about admonish, it means impart understanding. The idea is someone's coming alongside you and they want to correct you, not as a means of, of lording it over you or making you feel bad. That's not the point. It's to come alongside you and show you the doctrine of the Word of God as they themselves are being instructed. I mean, these are people that are perfect. They're growing in knowledge as well, but they're coming alongside you to help you in your walk with Jesus. That's our job is to help shepherd you, protect you from false teaching, to protect you from sin, to help you be the people that God desires you to be. And elders are to be like in, in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is, talks about the watchman on the wall. And this is what elders are supposed to be like. Now, the watchman on the wall had a responsibility that they were to, if they, they, were, they were on guard at the, on, the, on the city walls, looking out to see if there would be anybody that was attacking. And if there was, it was their duty to tell the citizens to prepare for that, that they are being attacked. And God warns Ezekiel, and he says to him, he says, if you see someone that's, that's coming and that you warn the people and they don't get ready, then you're, you're, you're exempt. You've, you've done what you're supposed to do. They didn't prepare as they were told to do, but they knew the danger was coming. He says, so you're okay. But if you see a threat coming at you, an army that's ready to attack, and you don't tell the people, then I will hold you to give an account for their blood. You're going to be responsible for them. You're to warn them. And see, that's what elders are to do. They're to be warning, guarding, protecting the flock of God. And we are to recognize these leaders that God has placed over us. We're not only to recognize such but we are also to regard them highly, regard them highly. Notice verse 13. 
He says, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, the Greek word for esteem here means hold in high regard, most highly, beyond all measure. The NIV, the New International Version, translates it or phrases it like this, exceedingly highly, because it's very expressive and very emphatic compound word that's only found here in the entirety of the New Testament. See, Paul wants them to be loved, these leaders. They're not to be just regarded simply as the cold voice of authority. Love is the characteristic of a Christian attitude uh, that we're to have to other people, which in other groups are apt to be formal and distant. In a Christian group, it's to be one of love. It is for the good of the church, the body of Christ, for, the, for those to love their leaders Because a church cannot be expected to to work or do its work effectively if the leaders aren't loyally supported by their fellow members. And it's a matter of fact, to this day, we often are slow to realize that effective leadership in the church of Christ demands effective following. If we are continually critical of those who are set over us in the Lord, small wonder that they are unable to perform the miracles that we demand of them. If we bear in mind because of their work, we may be more inclined to esteem them very highly in love. Now, what does all that mean? In the family of God, don't try to cause trouble. Listen to your elders as they share the word of God with you, as you share with them, as they listen to you, as you share your hurts, you share your concerns. Pray that they will be wise in how they lead. Pray that they will be able to bear up underneath the pressure. Pray that their family will, families will not be affected too greatly by their calling. And pray that they will be, una- be able to withstand the enemy's attacks. Now, here's another way that you can do it, but it also leads into our second point. Let's look at verse 13. This is how you can help your leaders, but it's also what Paul is telling us, another group, and how we are to treat them. Verse 13 says, Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, notice there's a shift here. See, before Paul was instructing us how we are to treat those in leadership, but here we see how we are to treat those in our fellowship as a church. As a church, we believe in membership, of being committed to one another. And our commitment-phobic culture, the idea of being a part of some type of commitment, is completely antithetical or radically flies in the face of our culture who doesn't want any strings to attach and wants complete independence. If we don't like something or it's too hard, we leave it behind, throw it away, and go on to something else. And this is why Paul is saying in verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. If you want to help your leaders, then you have to learn to get along with one another. See, if one of the, the biggest issues that I struggle with and as a leader is when I see people have conflict with one another because that means that I'm focusing on that issue and I can't help other things that are limited up. And sometimes, I mean, that, that, sorry, they limit my time because there are issues that really are not major issues. Not, I mean, sometimes they are and those need to be dealt with. But there are, sometimes are minor issues that are made major issues that are taking away from greater other, other areas and arenas of ministry that are sorely in need of help. So he's saying that you need to learn to get along with one another. Now, how do we do that? Well, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 talks a little bit about it. And, and, and also it just buttresses the point a little bit. In Hebrews 13, 17 in the NIV says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. That scares me to death, by the way. 
I'm going to give an account for your life. That freaks me out. It also freaks me out knowing that every time that I teach the Word of God, I'm going to be held and judged more strictly for what I am teaching. That's why we teach the Word of God, the Scripture and what the Scripture says, because that's a serious, sober thing. I remember hearing a pastor once say, he goes, when you get to heaven and you stand in the line for judgment, don't get in the line of pastors and elders. That line is going to take forever. Because it's true. I'm judged for how I teach the Word of God to you. So this calling that I have is not one that I I try to lord it over. It's one that, that God has called me to, that I will be held to an account for how I lead and I teach the Word of God to you and how I give an account of your life in teaching and instructing you in the Word of God. Because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So how do you make the elder's job a joy? Do what the Word of God says. Be at peace among yourselves. And seek to resolve conflict as much as you can so that it will help us be able to free to do greater and greater other arenas of ministry. Now, again, sometimes we need mediation, and that's what we're here for, too. So don't, I don't want to underestimate that. It's, it's necessary. But we are to, to continually to seek to resolve our issues and live in harmony with each other. We need to seek the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, as Ephesians 4.3 says. See, God desires us to be unified so that His name might be seen among us, as John chapter 17 says. When we are one as He is one, Father, Son, and Spirit, then the glory of God radiates from this place and from our lives. But if we're busy fighting with one another, holding grudges with one another, being bitter toward one another, God's glory is diminished. You may not voice it, but when you hold it and harbor it in your heart, God knows. He knows. Others know. You may not say a word, but you harbor bitterness in your heart. See, we need to, t- to make sure that we try to overlook minor offenses as we read in Proverbs 17.9. Love prospers when a fault is forgiven, but dwelling on it separates close friends. See, here's the thing about forgiveness. Let me, let me talk about forgiveness for a minute. Forgiveness means when you forgive someone, it means I am giving up the right to bring it up again. That's what forgiveness is. But for often, too often in the body of Christ, we don't do that. We forgive, but then we have We have attachments to that forgiveness. I will forgive them as long as they keep doing this. I forgive them as they keep doing that. No. See, when God forgives us, he doesn't continually remind us about that sin that we did 20, 30 years ago. It's done. It's under the blood. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't consequences for actions. Please don't misunderstand me. There might be forgiveness, but there might be a consequence for an action that we need to work through and deal with. But when we forgive someone, we give up the right to bring it up again. So when you're with your spouse and you say, honey, I've sinned against you. And your spouse says, I forgive you. No longer will you bring that up in another argument, another fight in the future. No longer is it in bounds because God himself doesn't do that. When, God, when we ask God for forgiveness to say, Lord, forgive me for that sin. Forgive me for what I did. God goes, I forgive you. And by the way, I'm going to bring it up to you later when I'm not happy with you. God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. Now, again, there are consequences for actions. And there's sometimes if there has been a serious breach of trust, there might be forgiveness, but that might have to be worked through. And that might, people might need to come to an acknowledgement or an awareness of what that really means. And they may not even be ready to forgive 
right away, depending on the depth of the hurt that was done to them. It's going to be a process for them as they learn to work through that, to let go of their anger, and to deal with it. Because forgiveness is a very powerful thing. We need to understand that. We have to give up our right to punish the person. See, that's another thing that we want to do. When someone hurts us, we want to punish them and inflict punishment and pain upon them as they've inflicted us. And we don't like letting them off the hook. We want to continually remind them again and again and again because our pain is so fresh. But when we realize what God has forgiven of us, all of the sins that he has forgiven for us, then that helps us then forgive other people. As the scripture says, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. How can we hold on to bitterness when God himself refuses to? We have to be able to let go of our bitterness and forgive one another. We need to seek to resolve our conflicts and live in harmony with one another. And if it's a minor offense, we need to learn to overlook it, to let it go. As Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. When someone has offended you, you don't need to continue to rehash it. Sometimes people don't even realize they've done something. I know that people have come to me and they said, well, you said so and such, or such and such. Did you mean that? And I said, I didn't even know that I did it. Please forgive me. I did not mean to hurt you. I really didn't. So we need to be aware of that. We need to be sensitive to that if we are going to truly be this, this body that God desires us to be. Because when we hold on to bitterness, God's name is impugned. Secondly, after we learn to resolve our conflicts and live in harmony with each other, we need to make sure that we reprimand the unruly. Reprimand the unruly. Look at verse 14 for me, with me for a moment. And we urge you, brothers... Admonish the idle. Now, the word idle has two possibilities in meaning, two possible meanings, either which could be seen in the context. It originally meant disorderly conduct or actions or persons. And it can be used also, though, for idle or lazy individuals as well. Lazy is probably more likely, but the relationship between laziness and unruly behavior can't be overlooked. We need to correct those who are lazy or disorderly. Now, let me ask you this Are you spiritually lazy? Are you bearing your weight as a, as a fellow member of the body of Christ? Or are you just a, a, you're, you're a spiritual consumer or a parasite that you just feed off the host and yet you don't do anything to contribute to the greater body? I'm not saying that you have to be the person that's up front. I'm not saying that you have to be the person who has all the answer or leads every Bible study. But do you have a heart to serve and help other people? See, that's what the body of Christ is. You can't just be an anonymous Christian, by the way. This removes that. When you see people coming in and get their spiritual fix and leaving, that's not what this is saying here. He's saying that, brothers, you know who these people are. You interact with them. You live with them. This is how we are to be with one another. We're to help those who are being lazy to get moving, to to pick up the slack, to do what God wants them to do. Can you imagine what God could do through our people if our people were all to take this scripture very seriously? To do everything that it says therein? It's incredible to think about it. But we need to reprimand the unruly. That's not all, though. We also need to make sure that we reinforce the timid. Examine verse 14 with me again, and you will see that we are to encourage the faint-hearted. Now, the word 
for encourage is more like the idea of comfort. We are to comfort the timid, which means the worried, the discouraged, the fearful, the inadequate, the lacking in confidence, the despondent, the sad, and the weak. We need to encourage those who are going through a hard time, are easily worried or fearful, feeling like they can't live the Christian life, or maybe they are generally respondent or simply despondent or simply weak of something that's going on in their life. We need to encourage these individuals to come alongside them, to help them, to listen to them, encourage them. But that's not all. Next, notice that we are to help the weak. Help the weak. Now, we're to reach out to the weak. The wording here seems to be very general. Um, The verb can be translated support, supply, help, or even defend. Now, while the word weakness can refer to moral temptation, spiritual shortcomings, physical weakness, or economic need, we need to help out those who are struggling. We need to look for opportunities to help people. We are a a culture today that's so self-focused. It's all about us. Every selfie that we take, every picture that we take, it just continues to magnify our loneliness. I would challenge you, my, my selfie people, okay? Don't just take pictures of yourself. If you want to take a picture and you got your selfie stick, which is okay, put someone else in the photo. Why does it always have to be about you? Why do I see all these pictures of just you on Facebook? Great. Flip, 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 flip. I want to see other people. I want to see the people that you're interacting with because we have a tendency to be pretty selfish. And our culture just continually stokes that fire of self. It's all about you. Have it your way. It's your wants, your needs. And if you're not getting your needs met, then you can go on and do this. It's all about self, 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 self. But God is saying, no, take your focus off yourself for a little bit and consider others to help the weak those who are seriously struggling in going through a hard time. I remember when we were going through a very hard time financially, when I I had finished schooling and hadn't found a job yet, and I had so many Christians walk up and hand us a gift card or money uh, or just encourage us or or, or offer us a place to stay. It helped us so much because we were struggling, not just financially but spiritually. Because, see, when you're struggling in those other arenas, it causes you to wonder about your faith and where you're at. Am I doing it right? What's going on? Why am I going through this hard time right now? And you need other people to come alongside you to help you. We need to reach out to the weak. We need to look for greater opportunities to help the weak in our church and in our community, the most vulnerable among us. Now, next, we need to make sure that we are to be patient with everybody patient with everybody. This is referring back to all the people that they had had to deal with in the church. The weak, the idle, the unruly, the timid. We are to respond patiently to everyone. How many of you, how many of us have not, we don't have very good patience. Are you a very patient person? I mean, we're very not, we're not a very patient people if we're very honest with ourselves. In our computer world, I mean, with our, with our, our cell phones and all the different things around us, we're used to getting things whenever we want it, however we want it. You want an order here tomorrow? Just order on Amazon, get the next day delivery. You want to have just, I mean, you're frustrated with your cell phone or your computer coverage or whatever, you can try to speed it up. We get fat, we get, we get frustrated when it goes, breaks down. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed at our children today when the internet's not working, it's like the apocalypse just happened. What do I do with myself? Here, this is called a book. They used to read these years ago. You should open one. 
takes you to an imaginary world. You get to, your imagination takes over. You don't need that to create something for you, which is what television does. A book in, creates it in your mind. But we need to make sure that we are being patient with everyone. But it's so, we also need to make sure that we refuse retaliation when we're wronged. You know, many of us, we're all New Testament Christians, but when we get wronged, we suddenly become Old Testament. An eye and eye, a tooth for a tooth, burn for burn. You hurt me, I hurt you. It's the Chicago way, right? Do you remember that movie, The Chicago Way, when he talks about it? Sean Connery is uh, playing a character named Malone, and he's speaking with uh, Kevin Costner's character who is trying to get Al Capone. Uh, and he says to him, he goes, he goes, you want to get Capone? How far are you willing to go? Know this. He hurt, you hurt him, he's going to hurt you. He puts, you. he puts one of yours in the hospital, you put one of his in the morgue. That's the Chicago way. Let me tell you, that's not the biblical way. Many of us operate on the Chicago way rather than in the biblical way. You hurt me, I hurt you. They say this about me, I say this about them. And it keeps going, and it gets, it gets worse and worse, and it escalates, and it escalates, and it escalates, and it escalates, and there's no end. No end. See, this is where God was gracious to us. He gave, he, he was merciful to us. Merciful means that he withholds what we deserve. We deserve punishment. But he gave us mercy and grace. He gave us what we didn't deserve. And we are to give mercy and grace to those who don't deserve it. That's the point of the gospel. Is you're to treat those who treated you poorly with love. That's what God did to us. Through Christ. We're too busy using the operating system of the world and how we go about our relationships. Not rather than what the scripture has laid out. And then, but we can't eat. There's something within us that says, well, I'm letting him off. No, you're making room for God's judgment. See, the problem that many of us have, we have a very hard time with when God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and I will repay. We have a very hard time with that because we don't like God's timetable or how he does things. We want justification and we want it right now and we're not going to let it go. But that's not what God says. See, God wants to do something within us deeply. And he wants to shape us from the inside out. And he has to transform us from the inside out to to, to to bring his name great glory. And that means learning how to forgive one another, how to be at peace with one another. And making sure that we refuse retaliation when we are wronged. Look at verse 15. See see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone, without exception. Many of us are like, well, that's just great for church, but let me get to real life. This is real. This is where the rubber meets the road. For example, the story in Northern Ireland, when one man lost his daughter to another IRA bombing that was going on back in the 1980s, and people experienced, were were waiting to hear from him from his hospital bed to cry out about his 20-year-old daughter and say, I'm going to get him. He goes, you know, there's going to be vengeance that I'm going to put out there. And he didn't say any of those things. You know what he said? I forgive them. And it caused this peace movement to go all across the country because he was responding with grace and mercy because that's what God does with us. He is gracious and merciful to us. 
We have to refuse retaliation and allow God to take his vengeance in his time and in his way. The problem is that many of us lack the faith to believe that God will. But we need to place ourselves in the hands of God. So we also need to be ready to do good to all. To be ready to do good to one another and to everyone. Ready to be, do good to all. We are to seek to do good to one another and to everybody. Not those that look like us. Not those that we like. Not those that, that act a certain way or are within our tribe or within our club or root for our sports team. We're to do good to all of them. All of them. No matter what their race, no matter what their background is. We need to look beyond those things and be ready to do good to all. Now, we've seen how we are to treat those in leadership and those in our fellowship. Now we're going to see how we are to go about and interact and engage in our worship. Our worship. Look at verse 16. Rejoice always. It's the first thing. Two words. Rejoice always. Yes, Christians, we need to understand that we are to be distinguished by our joy. Distinguished by our joy. There should not be curmudgeons in the kingdom of God. It should be an oxymoron, a curmudgeon Christian, a crusty Christian. We should be known by our joy. I'm not saying you have to walk around with a big, dumb smile on your face all the time, like Jack Nicholas and Batman is the Joker. You know, not like that. But it's to be this, this depth of peace within you that comes and realizes this joyous. It's joyish and joyous. We're to be known and distinguished by our joy. We need to be, I mean, do we rejoice? Let me ask you that question. Do you rejoice before God? Do you rejoice more? Let me ask you this. Would you rejoice more before the presence of God or if the Cubs won the World Series? Some are like, oh, that's close. No, it's not even close. Not at all. Why don't we be joyous or joyous? Why don't we rejoice before God? Why don't we lose ourselves in worship of his name? I think oftentimes we don't prepare to worship when we get here. We don't raise our hearts. We're too busy thinking about what's going on around us. See, this is where I love the story of King David when they were bringing the ark into Jerusalem and he was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. He lost himself. And it's interesting, though, his wife, Michael, saw him from the window, and it says she despised him in her heart. And she even, she mocks him when he comes in the room. She gives him just his barb right off. She goes, oh, how the king has dishonored himself in the presence of his maidservants today. David will have none of it. He goes, I was worshiping before the Lord who chose me over your father. And I will be blessed in their sight. And you know what it says next? It's an indictment. It says, and she had no children till the day of her death. That's an indictment. It's, God, it's indicating that it was God's judgment because she despised his worship in the sight of God. He was rejoicing before God. He was losing himself in worship. Are you rejoicing before God? I'm not saying that you have to step out of yourself and, and do things that you're not comfortable with. I'm not saying that. I'm saying is, do you just realize that you're worshiping before God himself and just offer yourself up in an impurity, the purity of who you are, the essence of your being before him? That's what we are called to do is to worship 
Him and to be known by our joy, to be rejoicing before Him. We need to make sure that we are distinguished by our joy. We also need to make sure that we are devoted to prayer. Notice the next verse. Pray without ceasing. We're to be in prayer all the time. Praying for our leaders, praying for those who go through a hard time. We need to always be praying. This doesn't mean praying the rosary or anything like that. It means to be in an attitude of prayer. It doesn't mean walking through all the time going, I pray for this person, I pray for that person. It's not what it is. The idea is just going through life, but there's an attitude of connection. It's keeping the connection open before God. It's just like with your cell phones. You're connected all the time. There are certain times you turn it off. With God, we don't turn it off. We're continually, continually connected to him, praying to him, communing with him, talking with him. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great 19th century pastor, was just an amazing man of God. Uh, He wasn't necessarily known for having these long times of prayer on his knees before his face like uh, a Martin Luther was who spent like three hours on his face before dawn. But he was a man that they said was never out of the presence of God for more than 15 minutes. I like that or even Brother Lawrence, who cultivated the presence of God as he was, a, he was a, a, a cook. He was continually contemplating and thinking about God's presence. And you can too, whether it's at your school, whether it's at your workplace, whether it's, whether it's at your home. We can all continue to cultivate that prayer relationship. We need to be devoted to prayer. Now, thirdly, we need to make sure that we, uh, we need to be determined to give thanks. We need to be known Christians need to have an attitude of gratitude, as the cliche says, but it's very true. We need to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us, for you. Now, it's not just referring to Thanksgiving there. It's actually referring back to all of the other things that were previously mentioned. But we need to make sure that we are thankful to God for all that he has done for us. We need to give thanks no matter what. And no matter what we're going through, knowing that God has ordained our best for us and will get us through it. Now, notice there's a shift in verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, before we see the positives, uh, before we saw the positives we were to do, but here we are seeing what we are not to do. We are not to be dampening the spirit's work in our midst. Now, the word in Greek literally means to put out a fire. We're not to put out the Holy Spirit's fire. Now, what does that mean? It means what you think it means. See, it was in the assembly of God's people that God would often show himself, meaning God gave certain spiritual gifts like prophecy, tongues, miracles, healings, teachings, administrations, all of these different things, confirming signs of his presence. Now, they weren't the only gifts. There were many different manifestations of the Holy Spirit of God in order to substantiate or authenticate the gospel message. Many, some believe that we do not need those any longer, but I'm not so sure. They believe since the Bible canon is complete, they're no longer needed. I am not in that camp. I believe that the Spirit authenticates and God is still working, speaking to His people. And I do believe that the abuses that have come with it over time have caused us to shy away from it and that the pendulum has gone so far one way, but we need to bring it back more to center where it should be. In that God still works, still speaks, through his people. It is not on par with Scripture, nor does it supersede Scripture, but it's meant to, to, to help benefit the common good of the body of Christ. When we hear of prophecies or the Spirit working, that's why in verse 20 he says, do not despise prophecy or some would say preaching. 
Now, there seems to be some disagreement by scholars as to whether this is referring to foretelling, as in preaching the principles and the Word of God and the truths therein, or foretelling, God giving pictures of the future. This is not so much about the end of time or the end of the world, but what God wants to say to the church to encourage them at a certain moment and time. We can see this in Acts and in 1 Corinthians. I see both of them in play, but would tend to lean on the foretelling side in line of what I understand of the nature of the gifts to substantiate God's work in the life of a church. See, the closest Paul comes to defining prophecy is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Apparently, it consisted of spontaneous, spirit-inspired, intelligible message orally delivered to the gathered assembly intended for the edification or encouragement of the people by men or women, according to 1 Corinthians 11, 4 through 5, who remained in control of that activity or gift. Although there seems to have been some who spoke this way more often than others who are called prophets, it appears to have been an activity potentially open to everyone. There is no evidence that such utterances were ever given the same authority as inspired texts such as Scripture or that they involved what is sometimes referred to as personal prophecy. Rather, its focus was on the corporate life of the community and in view of the present passage, it seems to have been a familiar aspect of the Spirit's activity in early Christian congregation. Let me explain what this means. Um, several years ago, when I was a pastor at Mid- uh, um, I think of the church, Calvary Baptist Church in Massachusetts, we had an all-night prayer meeting. This church had gone through a very difficult time. The church had divided and split twice. They'd fired their previous two pastors. They had about $80,000 in the bank. 35, member, or 35 members were two years away from closing its doors. And they decided to hire us. And we asked that God would take us to a place where only he could receive glory. And God received glory. And and through many different people that God brought in with us at the same time. And what happened is we started calling for an all-night prayer meeting to pray all night long. So we'd start at about 10 o'clock at night. We'd pray till 5, 6 in the morning, just interceding before God. So I was with these older people that were there that night. And we were praying and interceding before God. When One of the members of the church came in who was Portuguese. And he was speaking Portuguese. And so he came in, and he was with another friend who only spoke Portuguese. And so they're praying, and quite loudly, to the point where the rest of us had a hard time hearing one another. I don't know if you've ever been in a prayer meeting like that. And so I remember praying out loud, going, Lord, if this is of you, bless these men. If not, shut them up. Okay? And I was just praying that way. And at, at, as we had a little bit of a lull in the prayer time, they came up to me, and, and uh, one of the young men had, uh, men had something that he wanted to say to me, but he didn't speak English. So my friend said, I will translate. So he starts speaking to me, and he's prophesying, telling me about the ministry that I would do in the future. He didn't know me, but yet he, God was working through him to tell him about my ministry. And what he was telling me was stuff that I already knew. I felt that God had laid on my heart, my life, and so I'm hearing him, and I'm, I'd stop, and I'd ask him, I'd say, what's he saying now? And he'd tell me, and I'd say, okay, now what's he saying? And it went on for maybe four or five minutes, but finally I looked at him, and I said, what's he saying now? He goes, I don't know. He's speaking in tongues now. I have no clue what he's saying. It was, it was a funny moment, and, and, and that's what was going on with him. Now, I don't have that gift. I don't have that gift of tongues. I don't have that gift of prophecy. But I believe in its existence. I believe, though, that it has to f- follow the parameters. And there's some that might have a different conviction, and that's fine, and, and that's okay. Uh, we are, as a church, we have a view that we would call the open but cautious view. We are open to it when it operates within the biblical parameters, but it needs to be tested. And that's what Paul even says here. Test. Test it. Test everything in verse 21. 
Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. We are to test these things to see if they're truly from God, which means this. Does it contradict what the scripture says? Does it support what has already been said and what we understand? Does the person's life who is offering this, is it, is, is it a holy life? Is it one that we would consider worthy of emulation? These are just some of the questions that we look at when we're discerning and trying to understand these things. But it does need to be done decently and in order. Now, we need to make sure that we do not despise prophecy or preaching. We also must make sure that we are not deceived by error. Deceived by error. That's why he says here, test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. We need to, de- to test what we hear and how we evaluate it because there could be error that are brought in, false teachers, false prophets. We are to test everything and hold fast to what is good. We must evaluate according to some criteria. What the person uttering the, the, or the prophet uh, says must be consistent with Scripture, cannot contradict, supersede, or be on par with Scripture. And secondly, the prophet must have godly character that it was consistent with the message itself. The message that is given is never for the individual giving it. It is always for the greater body and the common good. And it should never be given for the own person's benefit, the prophet's benefit. We need to hold on to what is good, what is established, and what promotes holy living according to the Scriptures. Now lastly, we must make sure that we abstain from every form of evil every form of evil. We must make sure that we are not defeated by evil. We must live holy lives. The word literally, the word abstain actually is better avoid. Avoid every form of evil. Do not participate in it. All that is evil we need to stay away from. Pornography, drunkenness, drugs, um, sexual immorality, living together, gluttony, anorexia, bulimia, stealing, Pirating, witchcraft, gratuitous violence, banal TV shows, anti-Christian websites, immoral relationships. What is it? What is it that you, God is calling you to abstain from? What practice that you know in your heart of heart that you can rationalize? It might be a dating relationship. It could be some, an online thing. Whatever it is, God has convicted you about it, and you're holding on to it. You need to abstain from it. You need to leave it behind because if not, you're bringing God's discipline on your life and possibly His judgment if you continue on and you have the name of Christ upon you. We need to make sure that we fight against evil. We need to avoid it like the plague. We're not to flirt with it, but we're to stay away from it. Sin needs to be looked at. And maybe, I don't know how you are. Do anybody here have a fear of snakes? I don't like snakes. I'm not a big snake guy. Some people I know like snakes. My brother-in-law has snakes. He had, he had a snake in his uh, one of those big, giant snake prisons in his house. And that thing, I hated that thing, even walking in there. And he would, I remember one time going over, he goes, have you seen my snake? I said, you, know what, you, know what, you know what I said? Nothing, because I was outside the door when he said that. I, I was faster than Usain Bolt, because I hate snakes especially poisonous ones, okay? We're to abstain from every form of evil. Think of sin as your snake. Think of that. Or if you like snakes, come up with something you don't like, like Care Bears, whatever it is that you don't like, stay away from. I don't know what your thing is, but what you need to avoid like the plague, whatever you can't stand, that's what you need to think of when you, when you see sin. Avoid it. Leave it behind. We are to abstain from every form of evil. Make sure that we are not defeated by evil. Now, as the family of God, as we're finishing up our time together today, 
We need to know how we are to treat each other. If we want to experience the blessing of God, then it requires us, how to, how, requires us to learn how to be the family of God. How do we treat our leadership? How do we treat those in our fellowship? And how do we live before God in an act of worship? Our spiritual act of worship by offering up our bodies day in and day out. That's what God wants from us. And if we're to be that family that God wants us to be, then it takes us taking these steps, these necessary steps for the glory of God so that his name might receive great glory we might increase in joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that your word is powerful, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword. And Lord, we know that your word is profitable for preaching, teaching, training, rebuking, admonishing. Lord, helping us to be the men and women of God you desire us to be, that we might be equipped for every good work. Lord, we know that there are certain messages that we hear that are harder than others, some that seem to be much more applicable in the moment, but yet there are other truths that are given unto us for our benefit that we oftentimes overlook. Lord, help us to truly be this body you want us to be. Help us to live the way you want us to live. Help us to truly have the family life that you have purposed within your word, that when other people come into this body, that they might see your love emanate from us they might see us forgiving one another, not holding grudges, but we are truly living the life that you have given unto us through Christ. So Lord, please be with us today. Help us to walk closer in your truth and glorify your name in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.